We'll open up Exodus chapter 11. We are going back into the amazing narrative, the, in fact, terrible display of God's judgment, justice, and holiness that we see here in Exodus chapters 8 through 12, which is the plague accounts. I've reminded you each week that the, the word plague in English really denotes a kind of a sickness, the boils, the, the vomiting, that kind of idea. And, and in the actual Hebrew, the word of plague is the word of, of striking, of landing a blow against an opponent, an opponent in a match or, or in battle. And that is how God has phrased for himself what he is doing against the Egyptian gods. When he spoke to Moses, he said, I will strike the Egyptians with many blows. I will, I will be lining up my divine fist and bringing down judgment onto them, and you will be the audience. You will not be my tag team partners. I will not be asking you to do for me what I cannot when I run out of energy. I will not be asking you to do for me what I cannot because of my limitations. God has no limitations. We have seen, we have seen that in this account. He has no hesitancy to judge except for his own mercy. He has nothing that restrains his powerful hand except for his own grace. And there is no sphere of the created order, even the spiritual realm, that God does not have absolute sovereignty over to do whatever he wants. And we've been seeing that in the plague account. God has, God has judged and put to shame the Egyptian gods. God has made the Egyptian people to fear him. And now they're even starting to fear Moses, we see in this passage. God has made the Egyptian Pharaoh to have his heart hardened against God. This is one of those difficult parts as we read throughout the passage that it tells us God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could not repent and let the people go. Or other times it tells us that Pharaoh, seeing the, the mercy of God, he, he, he asks Moses to pray. Moses prays and God relieves the plague. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. How should we think about this dynamic very briefly before we go on? I think it's most helpful to think of it this way. The way the Puritans used to speak of the divine sovereignty of God in salvation over people's hearts. And they said this, that the same sun which melts ice also hardens clay. At every juncture, we've been seeing the people of God whose hearts have been made soft by him to, to respond to him rightly. They've been seeing God's justice, his judgment, his, his salvation to them, his, his mercy to them as he separates Israel from Egypt. And even the Egyptian people have been seeing God's judgment, then his mercy when there is prayer, and then his threats of more judgment. And they've been softening their hearts towards God. They've been, they've been hoping for mercy. And now we start seeing even in this passage a, a division between Pharaoh and the people. They want mercy, Pharaoh wants none of it. Why? Because as God's judgment and power and even mercy is poured out, it is like sun coming down from heaven. And if anybody has not already had their heart turned from clay into ice by God's own sovereign will, then all that will happen to them is that the mercy of God is put on display and they harden. They're like a, a clay brick out in the sun. That same sun, the acts of God's mercy and grace are put on display and they harden. They become like a strong brick that is, that is unbreakable and in, uh, unresponsive. And yet to the people who God has already changed their heart, to the people who have already been made responsive by God, when that same sun comes down, they melt. 
in the softness of a, of a bended knee and a recognition of God's holiness. And so it can accurately say that as God pours out his judgment and displays, he does not save Pharaoh. He keeps Pharaoh's heart hardened so that he would continue to build himself up and eventually his fall would be all the more glorious. But to those people who I pray like us today, to those people who, who had had their hearts changed, they could see God's working and their hearts responded in some measure of faith. Chapter 11 of, our, of Exodus today is going to be our reading. 11 is only 10 verses, and then we will read 20-something verses. I'm lying. 30-something verses of chapter 12, but I'm going to read it all in one sitting. I'll, I'll make a couple of passing comments when necessary, but of course, as Tim, uh, Paul commands us in the book of Timothy, we need to give ourselves, I especially, the teaching elder, to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Don't tune out. Follow closely. Imagine the drama. Put yourself there. <clears throat> and I'll try not to read names wrong. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will in fact drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man his neighbor and every woman her neighbor for silver and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Verse 4. So, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, this is now to Pharaoh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of even the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me. <laughs> I love that. He's looking at Pharaoh in his face with his henchmen either side, and he's saying, also, your right hand and your left hand men will come down to me and beg of me mercy. Just you watch. All these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10. As a, as a summary of the first nine plagues, verse 10 says this. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. This would be the Jewish month Nisan. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb per household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according uh, to the number of persons, according to what each will eat. So you shall make the count for the lamb. 
Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. All of those elements are so important. We'll see why. But I hope none of this is bland detail for you. Verse 9. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. And every teenage boy said, Amen. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14. This day shall be a memorial day. So so now he's looking future. He's saying in every coming year, you will celebrate this day. This day will be a memorial for you. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever you shall keep the feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut out from the people of Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread only until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven... uh, uh, For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or native to the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel uh, uh, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of that door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of the Egyptians 
but spared, for he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29, our last paragraph. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron. He summoned them by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. This is truly a terrible and horrible story that God details for us. There has been, first of all, there will be the, well, we see God warning, uh, uh, telling Moses of what will happen and telling him to warn Pharaoh. And then we see the second scene of Moses and Aaron then going back to Israel and getting the heads of household sort of in a huddle saying, here's the, here's the game plan for tonight. Here's the, here's the plan that the master has given to us. Here's what we do. Here's how we win. Here's how we get out alive. And then the third scene is when it actually strikes. That plague, the most terrible of plagues, comes down and strikes Egypt. And that will be the third scene. This is a severe story. It is a confronting scene. If you're not a usual Bible reader or churchgoer and you hear this and think that this sounds like some kind of uh, uh, glory story from a death cult, you're not, you're not entirely to blame for the severity that you feel. This is confronting what we see. This is the most severe of the plague accounts. But God will receive glory over the gods of Egypt. Glory as judge and glory as covenant-keeping saviour. So let's look first at what he says as in terms of his threat. He, he, makes the, he promises Moses this is all going to happen. And, and the element of the actual exodus, when they leave and how they take the gold, that we will cover next week. But, but we will focus in on what he says in verses 4 through 6. As Moses goes back into the presence of Pharaoh. Now some of you might remember uh, the sermon well enough a few weeks ago to say, I thought that the last time Moses made these threats... I thought the last time that there was a plague, plague number nine, there we go. I thought that Pharaoh told Moses, if I see you again, you'll die. And Moses said, you won't see me again till you're dead, brother. And he walked out in a mic drop moment. Isn't that what happened? And, and some people take the, the Hebrew construction to actually suggest that this, what he threatens now, was given him to say in that same outburst. Yeah, next time you see me, there'll be death. Do you know why? Because God will send down his angel to destroy. Now that's one option. The other option is that he does go back in under God's protection and Pharaoh simply doesn't kill him. Not entirely relevant, but in case you had a question about the timeline, there it is. He goes back into Pharaoh's presence and he makes the threat. Verse 4. Thus says Yahweh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. From the, every household from Pharaoh who sits on his throne. 
down to the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and even all the firstborn of the cattle. This is, this is suggesting to us, and driving home, this is going to be severe. When, when God sort of sandwiches like this in Scripture, he's basically saying this, this, and everything in between. Pharaoh on top, the slave girl down beneath. Later on in the account of chapter 12, he says, Pharaoh, down even to the guy serving time in prison, his firstborn. Every household, every class, nobody is protected from God's judgment if they are outside of the covenant promise of the blood of the Lamb. No one. The, the priests even, who are in their temples praying to their God, offering sacrifices, guarding their God's temple, no matter who they are, the message was extremely clear to Egypt. No one can save you from Yahweh's wrath except for Yahweh himself. And we are told that this will be the worst ever experience. Verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. We might wonder, has, has not thousands, even tens of thousands Egyptians died before in their history as a nation? I mean, you don't become a superpower unless you've engaged in, in, in multinational warfare. I mean, sure, maybe even natural disaster, maybe it was warfare. Has there not been a time when, when a pharaoh died and, and everybody cried? Or, or when thousands of the sons were not brought home from battle because they died? Would this really be simply because one person per household is dead? The greatest outcry that Egypt has ever experienced? But of course... The reality is that no mother, no man loves their nation to such a degree that a lost battle or a bad turn in the economy will ever compare to seeing your firstborn child dead in their bed. And, and even in, in the greatest of battles, it would not be the case that every single household, maybe the more privileged, did not lose people. Or, or there was a son here and there who came home to their mother, but this would be all-encompassing. A terrible, horrible, personal, visceral pain would erupt into a cry from every household. Maybe, maybe you've heard the dogs send off their, their chain reaction midnight one time when somebody drops a pan in the middle of the night in their midnight snack and, and a dog barks and another howls and, and then the whole community starts, starts rearing. It would, it would almost be like that, but so much worse. These would be human voices lamenting the death, the loss of life of their firstborn, screaming and howling with hopelessness, not because anything can be done, but screaming because nothing can be done. This would be a deeply personal, a horrible and horrendous thing to experience for every single person in the nation. And then we move from, from Moses threatening Pharaoh this, now we move to the actual instructions in chapter 12, all about the, 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 the how to celebrate the Passover. In fact, at this point, Israel isn't even aware that this is going to become a celebration. You can imagine that as, as they've heard Moses command all this, and as they've heard the story of what's about to happen, you would think this is going to be a dark hour. Let's get out of Egypt and never talk about it again. That would be called sort of the, maybe the pact that they make. We don't want to tell our children this horrible, scary story. And God comes in through the prophet Moses and says, you're going to detail every part of it. 
Actually, there's going to be a bigger kind of 4th of July or Australia Day celebration every year, right? 14th day of the first month of the year, you're going to have this week-long celebration that starts with the Passover meal. Okay, that's, that's what's going to happen. And, and here are the Israelites thinking, why would we remember this? Or, or what is it that we are to do? And, and God is gracious through Moses to explain all that should happen. He starts, first of all, with what they are to do on the first Passover meal. The first Passover night, the original Passover. And Moses goes in and, and he is told to tell them that they must go and find themselves an unblemished lamb. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 12. <clears throat> <clears throat> he gives them instructions for what kind of lamb they are to eat. Now, you would be free to eat whichever of your lambs you want to eat as a, as a household. You might even choose to, to eat the one with a gimpy leg because it's going to be harder to take care of. The one with weird blemishes on its side that'll, you know, carve off that part of the meat. The rest is good to eat. You know, you eat the dodgy one, all right? You, you let the others uh, prepare the wool and whatnot. But, but God has said it multiple times throughout this, this account. This is not your Passover. It is not remembering Israel and your feats. This is the Lord's Passover. This lamb, even though they don't have a tabernacle or a temple to worship in, this lamb is not ultimately their lamb. It is a sacrifice to God. It is the Passover lamb for God. And therefore, they are commanded to take the best. Take a young male in the, in the height of its youth, just before it starts aging badly, that one-year-old lamb, strong and young, a male, take it and only take one that verse 5 says here is, your lamb shall be without blemish. That is, it's, it's wool, pure white, no spots. A male, a year old, you, shall, you can take it from either the sheep or from the goats, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They were to take it a few days earlier, take it into their house so that they can assess it, so that they can make sure it doesn't have a limp, it does work properly, it eats fine, it's, a, it's an unblemished lamb, and then after all the kids have gotten sufficiently bound to this little lamb, maybe they've named it now, you know, Gary or, or, or whatever they've chosen to name, you know, a, a cushion or, or whatever it is they've named, this cute little lamb, the dad is to take it and butcher it in the household. How's that? This is what God has commanded, that it would be a household family worship gathering. They're not gathering as an entire congregation, they're acting as an entire congregation in their homes. This is deeply personal. Just as the, the Egyptians would be experiencing death, not just on a corporate level, but on a personal, familial level. So also every Jewish household will experience death on a personal level. Their lamb, their investment of livestock, their cute little pet, their house will be spattered with blood. It's personal, but so that they can also experience the personal, familiar, close at hand grace. As they are killing one lamb, they're to tell their son, this is instead of you. Gary, whatever they've named it, this lamb, it's going to die or you will die. 
death is coming to this household, either in the form of an animal sacrifice or in the form of a lost child. We must kill this lamb, as horrible as it seems, as bloody as it will be. And, 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 and the, the, the Jews had, had lost their tradition of sacrifices to Yahweh. And so, so this is a first-time sort of event again. And, and here they are in their household with their children, each household killing the Passover lamb. But it was to be done, as verse 12 to 13 shows us, in faith. This is the first element of what they're doing in their sacrifice. They are commanded to do it in faith. Verse 12 and 13 says, oh, sorry, in verse 7, verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Then take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which you eat. What he said is he, he's told them to grab some of the herbs, the hyssop with the nice little blue feather, uh, uh, flowers and, 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 and tie it together and use it as a brush. Go and take the basin that you've drained the blood into, carry that basin and put some on the two doorposts either side and across the lintel, which was the horizontal bar. Themselves, they were applying the blood with the branch of hyssop. And then they, they go back inside. And, and that is a strange act that kind of looks vandalistic or at least weird. Why am I painting my house with blood that will just sit there and rot and age, and eventually be wiped away with the next rain. And this is what God tells them in verse 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The reason that this was going to be an act of faith was because there is nothing, no thing about the blood of a lamb, a year old that is male. There is nothing in the veins of that blood. There is nothing in the, sorry, the veins of that lamb. There's, there's nothing in the constitution of the lamb's blood that has any power whatever to save from a wrath and holy God. Nothing is going to actually stop. It's not superstition. It's not like God can't enter where there's the, you know, the, the chakras of a lamb's blood that have put up. He's, he's stopped. It's nothing like that. In fact, it's not even a sign for God primarily. God is omniscient. Does he need something physical to see our faith? Does, does he, as he commands these people, you take the blood, you put it up, and this is an act of faith. There's no reason that you should be confident that the blood will stop me except for my promise. This is where they're being tested. The, the sign of the blood is not ultimately for God to know who has faith. It is ultimately for the Jews to be able to wake up the next morning and see as a fact, see as a testimony to God's gracious covenant-keeping promises that no one with the blood over them was harmed. That's what it's for. It's, it's enabling them to enter into the drama of the salvation so that by faith, for no other reason than that because God has said it, they take blood, they paint it, they sit in hope, and in the morning they will come out victorious, looking around to see the evidence that all those under the, lamb, under the Lamb's blood were in fact saved. This is what their faith consisted of. They're sitting there, and though it's been 400 years and God never saved us, though it's been nine plagues so far and Pharaoh hasn't let us go yet, yet they're saying... By faith, as they put the blood up, what they're confident of is this. God can kill sinners. 
God should kill sinners. I am a sinner along with all those in Egypt. But God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God does not break his promises. And tonight, God promises to save all who put up the blood. I have put up the blood. I trust that I will be saved. That's what their faith consisted in. There is nothing about human blood either. As we, we sit here and we realize that this, this, this Passover lamb was sacrificed, then we, we fast forward 1,500 years to the, to the land of Israel where the apostle John, uh, sorry, John the Baptist, is a much better version of Moses. And what he says to the people of Israel is, behold, the lamb of God. He doesn't tell them, go get a lamb. He says, God gave a lamb. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the baptizer first said when he saw Jesus walking back from the wilderness after he had baptized him. And, and there's nothing about Jesus' blood, the constitution of the God-man's blood, that would give anyone any confidence that you would be saved from hell. Sometimes we hear things so often in church that we just assume them and we forget to step back and ask, how in the world does this work? Why does a young man, like a young goat, young lamb, why does a young man in the height of his youth as a 30-something-year-old man, why does a, even a perfect man who's never sinned, which Jesus was, why does that man's red liquid from his arteries, why does that have any power, except for the uh, ideas of superstition, why does that have any power to save me from the eternal wrath that I will be uh, tormented with in hell? How? How does blood pay for sin. Well, of course it doesn't. It is not the blood of Jesus that, that came and, and did anything magical. In, in fact, as we stand back, we have no reason outside of the Word of God, no reason to even believe that there is saving power in Jesus' blood. If all you had was history, if all you had was the, was the handed down a, a story that a, a man named Jesus of Nazareth was a carpenter turned preacher and he was taken by the Romans and handed over by the Jews and he was killed in public and his blood ran down, there is nothing in the history of the fact that tells us that that equals salvation. Except for the fact that in his word, God has promised that by that sacrifice, he was paying for our sins. There is nothing in it, in the science of it, that means we would be saved except for the fact that God had predestined and then promised that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved because his blood was shed. Do you see that the covenant promise of God is the only thing that gives power to the blood of the Lamb? So it is with us. The, the, the command is that each of us would, would take up the, the faith of the hyssop and go and dunk it in the blood of Jesus Christ and put it up over our soul and say, God, when your wrath comes, pass over me. I have no reason why this, this carpenter man 2,000 years ago would equal my salvation except I see it written in your word. I hear it preached in the gospel that if I call on him, if I call on the name of Jesus and say his blood be over me, his death be instead of me, his life be in place of me, his lordship be over me, please Lord God, his mediatorial work cover me. If you don't cry that, you have no salvation. And whether it makes sense or not, if you cry out to that God, he will give you salvation from his wrath. This is the picture that the Israelites were to be fulfilling ultimately for our sake. It was being done in an act of faith. But also, 
we see that it was to be done with a spirit of anticipation. So look at chapter 12 and verse 8. Here's a number of specifics that God commands, and we'll look at why in a moment. In verse 8 he says, Eat the whole lamb that night. Eat the flesh that night. Don't go to bed until everything... This is obviously a European grandmother uh, uh, wrote this. No leftovers allowed. You still hungry, darling? Keep on eating. Keep on eating. Oh, you shall eat all the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Here's, here's the thing about all of those elements. He also says in the next verse, don't boil it. Boiling took time. You had to go and get the water. You had to go and get the wood, you had to start the fire, boil the water, and then go through the slow process of cooking the whole lamb. Don't do that, God says. Instead, start the fire, put the lamb on top, don't even finish the butchering process. Just gut it, get the disgusting, unclean parts out, then with the organs still in it, roast it. Why? Why were they only allowed to have unleavened bread that didn't take the 12 plus hours to, to leaven and, and, and knead through and then become a loaf? Why? Why were they to have as their side dish bitter herbs plucked straight from the garden, thrown on the plate? Why wouldn't they have the vegetables that are picked and roasted and after a period of growing? Why? The answer is haste. God was telling them this whole meal is a glorious celebration, but it has to be done quickly. Because at any moment, I'm going to call on you to flee out of Egypt and you have to be ready. So just as they were eating by faith, they were, they were shedding the blood by faith. God said we do this, he'll save us, so we do it. But also God said, eat in anticipation, as if to say, eat on the edge of your seats, sit on the, on the tiptoes, so that at the moment's notice you can run. He also goes to command them in the next, in the next verse or two. Uh, in verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, <coughs> with your belt fastened, that, that's usually that they would gather up their long robes and fasten it around their waist as a, as a readiness to run. With your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. The Lord is passing over. And so I don't know if you've ever been at a dinner party and maybe, maybe 20 minutes into the meal... You know, the husband of, the, of your friend or the, or the wife of your friend sort of has their keys and are just jingling it on the table as if to say, I'm finished, I'm done here, can we go home, right? If you don't, if, maybe you're noticing this for the first time, jingling the keys is them telling their partner, we're done, let's go, come on. I've got my wallet, I've got everything back in, we're good to go. That's a, they're being quite rude, but that's what it is. Or, or, or if, if, if somebody came over for your birthday celebration and he comes in and his ute is sort of parked diagonally on the curb and uh, he doesn't even have shoes on and the car's still running, door is swung open and he's standing at you a fly screen saying, happy birthday, holding out the present and you, you would ask, what are you doing? You coming in? You know automatically that, that simply by his presence, the way he's, he, he's posed himself and, and he's ready to go. He's, at, he's not sticking around. It's, it's that kind of picture, that anticipation, ready to go at the moment's notice that God actually commands everybody come together, eat your meal with your engines running, with your car keys in pocket, with your phone already packed. Don't do the, the, the last minute dad move where you're walking around collecting everything five minutes before you go and running yourself like, get ready to go. Be immediately ready to go. That's, that's what he's told them. Because God was giving to them a complete salvation. 
God was not merely going to save them from the tenth plague of God's wrath in Egypt. That would be a great, relieving, merciful, gracious, but incomplete salvation because where would they still be? In Egypt. In Egypt. He was not merely going to pass over their sins and then leave them. He was going to pass over their sins and redeem them, rescue them, and bring them to a new land. My, my goodness, there is, a, there is a picture in this for the Christian church today. How many, how many Christians want to be able to put up their hand and say, I'm under the blood, I'm under the blood, I'm under the blood, and I can live in this idolatrous lifestyle, in this sinful habits, in my, in my evil ways. I can stay right here because the blood has saved me. And they don't realize that we're not saying they need to work for salvation they need to realize that the salvation that Yahweh gives is a complete salvation which comes with an exodus out of the evil land that you have now been living in. And some of us need to realize that. That that God is not asking you to shed a bit of your blood in obedience so you become good enough to be saved. He is telling you, I have saved you by the blood of my son, but that is an incomplete salvation if it leaves you in sin. God's eternal purpose is that you will be eventually one day perfected out of sin, glorified in a body without sin, and put in a world without sin. And that starts echoing through our life now. Have you trusted in the blood of Christ for salvation? Good. He is your Lord who gives a more complete salvation also and commands that we live our life in anticipation and we walk out of the land of sin. But there's also some people in our midst who have been toying with the idea of salvation. Who thought about forgiveness of sin and and it's interesting to you. And and as you've been coming or talking with your friends, uh, you've understood the reality of the gospel that Jesus saves from hell anyone who trusts in him. And yet you hear it sitting down on your seat with your buckle on and legs up. And what I want to to tell you is that if you want salvation, then hear the gospel, consider Jesus Christ on the edge of your seat. I'm not going to tell you that if you do something, if you change your life, if you, if, you, if you do something for God, then God will save you. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, hear the gospel in, in the kind of anticipation that the Israelites were told to. Hear the blessing of forgiveness of sins, fully expectant that when God gives you a new heart to believe, your life will change. You, you seem to be toying, and I've, I, as a pastor, I've counseled so many people in this kind of area of their life. They're, they're almost believing, but they're sending their anchor further into the sea of sin. They're, they're almost believing, but they're still pursuing unrighteous things that they know will, will have them uh, damned. And I, I said to one man once, I said, the way you're living, you know, you're telling me, I, I, I believe, I really want to believe, can you pray me to believe? But I could tell by the way he was living that he was, he, he was simply being passive, as if he had no real expectation that God would actually change his life or that God would actually redeem him. And I said, the way that you're speaking tells me you wish to be saved. The way that you're living tells me you're like Pharaoh. You're relaxing on the grace of God. You're remaining in the ways that he's commanding you to put away with. And and don't start using the arguments of what, well, God will do it. God will save me. He's forgiving. So no, you pursue God. You be ready to put away everything the moment the call comes to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's now no more excuses. 
How often, like Pharaoh, we, we lean and we, we, we presume upon the mercies of God instead of, like the Israelites have been told, hear of the blood, trust in the blood, and live in the anticipation of the moment that God will change everything and take us out. Even in the manner that they ate, it was to be in anticipation. Eat it quickly, with no leftovers. And you can imagine, when I first read this, I thought, there's nothing better than lamb roast leftovers. That's just me. When, when all the fat and the oil congeal and you get to use it as a butter, oh my goodness, and you melt it all down and it becomes a drink, hallelujah. And, and here I am thinking, why would God not even, why would he want to waste the food if they've got such a flight ahead of them? Surely that will make a pretty good breakfast. Here's the point. God's saying to the people, you're not supposed to think that there will be a breakfast. Eat everything. Gobble it up. Put the dishes away. and get, Don't even put the dishes away. Just go to sleep. Be ready to run. There is no breakfast. First light, you're out of here. And so they were to eat it all. And if the faithless among them wanted to keep some for the morning, just in case God was wrong, he would judge them. He was saying, eat it all and then burn the rest. You're not going to be here in the morning. And so they ate in their anticipation. And thirdly, we see that they, they were to then, it was to then become an act of remembrance. So look at chapter 12. Verse 14, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. And then in verse 16, he says, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days except what is necessary for what you need to eat. So what he sets up is, is around all of the, most of the Jewish uh, uh, holy days, there was also a feast. Sometimes they would feast all week and celebrate at the end. Sometimes they would celebrate at the beginning, feast all week, and have a smaller celebration at the end. And the Passover is the second type. That they were to gather their lambs on the 10th of Nisan, assess them, be ready to kill them at twilight, on the 14th of Nisan. And then until the, the, and, and on that day, have a big assembly, a big gathering, a big sacrifice, a big worship. God has redeemed us from, Israel, from Egypt, rather. And then on the last day, again the Sabbath, they were to have another celebration that they all came together for. And then in between those days, they had a festival where they ate no leaven. Again, the leaven was what you, it's yeast. It's what you put in the bread to make it rise. Well, they didn't have time to wait for rising bread back in, back in Egypt. So, so we're remembering that we put away leaven to remember the quickness, the haste, the power with which God rescued our forefathers. But of course, there was an ongoing pattern or imagery there that, that just as we put away leaven, which infects everything, get it all out of the house. Because if you've even got a jar on the top shelf, it can waft and get into your bread. And so it became an imagery, so it is that you shall do with sin. Put sin out of your midst or it infects everything. Put evil and bitterness and, and jealousy out of your midst, otherwise you will be infected. That is in fact exactly what Paul commands the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, when he is telling them to get rid of the sinful adulterer in their midst. Or when he's telling them to be putting away bitterness, he tells them, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast of unleavened bread without bitterness and sin and jealousy and envy. So it is for the people of God even today. The putting away of leaven ought to be done by us. But God, whenever, we see this in the Old Testament, when he does these tremendous acts of salvation, he staples to them, a way to remember it into the future. 
God wants us to be an alert, remembering people. That's evident from the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. Do you know the two ordinances of remembrance that God has given to his church through the Lord Jesus Christ? It is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Communion is now, is now our time that we come together to remember and to intentionally refocus on the sacrifice of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't do it once a year. There's not a calendar like that. Each church is free to do it as frequently as they see fit, but it is as long as it is giving to us regular, reverent remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation in the gospel. Where, where we do not simply have freedom from Egypt, we have freedom from sin. Where we are not simply passed over that final plague, but we are passed over an eternal striking of judgment in hell. Jesus Christ is the truer and the better and the greater sacrifice of the Passover. Here's somewhere where we might get it wrong. We think the Passover meal is fulfilled in communion. Communion is a way to remember the Passover meal. Wrong. What are we missing? Jesus Christ. The old was a shadow. It was, it was a crumb compared to a feast. Passover compared to Jesus was a, was a little flickering candle compared to the midday sun. Jesus is the substance of Passover. I'm quoting Paul. He's the substance, that's the shadow. He's the true Passover lamb. When, when you think of Passover, don't think communion. Think Christ. Think gospel. Think blood of the lamb spread across the uprights and the, and, and the horizontal posts. Jesus is our Passover unblemished lamb shed for our forgiveness. Communion now is the remembrance of Jesus. Jesus said this, of course, in, in Luke. In Luke chapter 22, he spoke to his disciples on that night before he was to be betrayed. and he t Well, the night of his betrayal, the night before he died. And he said to them, uh, uh, in verse 15 of Luke 22, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine until, it, until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after, uh, likewise, the cup he took after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what Jesus says. He takes the Passover and says, you know how it's fulfilled and what an audacious thing to do, their biggest holiday? He takes and he makes it about himself. He says, I'm that Passover lamb. This cup is my blood in the remembrance of the new covenant. Now do a new thing. Now do a bread and wine thing to remember me as the time goes on until such a time as I come back in the fulfillment of my kingdom. This is what the Lord's Supper is. I was reading... I was reading a book during the week on, on worship and worship styles and how different pastors and churches and denominations utilize different elements and try and justify the different elements they do in their worship. Now, now no show of hands, but there are churches out there that do dramas and plays. Not just the Christmas pageant, bad enough. Not just the Easter show, 
cringeworthy enough, but weekly, sometimes fortnightly, or, or maybe monthly, because they're much more conservative, and they do dramas. Even people in the Reformed tradition, they'll do dramas, maybe a ballet dance, sing that one, maybe a little display of a mime or, or, or a light-type multimedia show. They do dramas, and what do they say? Their justification is that all throughout the Old Testament, God gave to his people something to see something to feel, something even to engage in physically to rehearse the drama of salvation. Now, now, do we allow and have we been given in the New Testament drama that is allowed in the church of God? Yes. And it is called the ordinances. Don't think of the ordinances, some little thing that happens and whatever. I wish we had drama. Or even think, I'm glad we don't have drama and we just do word-based things. See, in baptism, and in your getting up and walking forward and taking communion, as God's holy, only those two ways of engaging in the drama of redemption. When you're baptized, and we'll behold this in a few weeks, people are going under in this dramatic show of I'm dead with Christ and alive again. In the communion, we take the bread, we eat it in remembrance of what faith is, taking Jesus into our souls. We drink the cup in remembrance that his blood was shed out, and now we drink of the promises of God. These are the only allowed dramas of our church gathered worship, but so it is by God's design. And, and we'll close out here by the reading of this most horrible scene, what happens in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 to 32. At midnight, Yahweh struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Sometimes you can get fed up with the repetition. This is a Hebrew way of showing, I said in minute detail what I would do. He repeats it at the end of the story to show I'm keeping my promises. I did exactly what I said I would do. As we read as we fearfully considered, so he did exactly that. Verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve Yahweh. As you've said, Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And bless me also. That, that, that thread of hope that they would still pray for him. Maybe just as God lifted the other plagues, maybe God would give him back his son. But he would not. The death had fallen. The plague had come. And, and I wonder if even in this story you see mercy. Do you see that, that we're so, we're so uh, bent on asking, how is this fair? I'm not that bad. No one's that bad. That you didn't even see the mercy that was just all throughout that whole passage. God's going to kill every firstborn, daughter or son. The Hebrew doesn't just mean son there. Daughter or son, adult or child, everyone's going to have somebody dead in their household. And, and do you know the one mercy that he gives them? They can die in their sleep. That's their mercy. It doesn't feel like mercy because they still die. It doesn't seem like mercy to us because we want them to live. And they woke up in hell, very true, but God's mercy was towards them.
commonly in, in this gracious act that they would at least die in their sleep without an overwhelming fear. But, but the, the bigger point of this passage is that God's judgment fell exactly as it was supposed to. Children died to fathers who had been abusing the Israelites. Children died to mothers and fathers who had been sinning by their idolatry to the gods of Egypt. And anybody that died, in case the children dying feels too much like an innocent, innocent uh, uh, casualty, everybody that died was guilty with Adam's sin because with Adam, they sinned in the garden. There was no righteous people dying here on this Passover. The only time a righteous person would die on a Passover was when a righteous person gave himself as a sacrifice for the unrighteous and carried our sin, thus becoming legally unrighteous. That's the only time that happened. And that was Jesus. 1,500 years after this. But this night is a night of, in fact, mercy. Everybody should have died. They shouldn't have lived this long. And yet in, amidst his judgment was the mercy. Pharaoh finally kicked him out, a defeated man, the wrath of God had fallen. There's a, there's a great preacher. His name's Don Carson, still alive, Canadian, but still alive. And he preaches. And I was listening to him once years ago on this passage. Maybe some of you even heard the, the clip that the went viral years ago. And, and he's teaching on this passage. And he says, <coughs> imagine, if you will, two Jewish fathers, maybe fly fishing on the corner of the Nile up in Goshen. And they're standing with each other. And, and one, you know, Jewish names, Smith and Goldberg say, and Goldberg turns over to Smith and goes, don't you, don't you feel a bit of fear about tonight? Hey, it's coming. You know, it's dusk, the sun's going down, midnight's coming. He goes, nah, nah, man. I'm pretty good. Right? And, and here's Goldberg. He goes, okay, but I mean, let's be honest. Wives aren't around. Haven't you just been fearful at the amount of things that have been going on around the land of Egypt lately? And the Nile was blood. I mean, the, the frogs and, and all that other stuff and the hail. And, you know, and here's Smith. And he goes, no, mate, we were, we were saved from all that. You know, God's good. And here's, here's Goldberg. And he goes, okay, but, but the death of the firstborn? I mean, I mean, this is pretty fearful stuff. Can you at least acknowledge that it's very scary? You know, here's Smith. He goes, come on, man. You killed the lamb? Yes, I, I've killed the lamb. Okay, and you, you, you splattered your doorposts like we were told? Yes, okay, I've, I've done all that. I did exactly as he said. I, I, I know the rules. I followed the rules. I know what to do. Here's, here's Smith. He's going, all right, man. Chill out. And, and Smith goes, can you not acknowledge at least that this is, can, can you sympathize with me that I'm fearful and scared? This is a scary night. And Gold, you know, Smith over here just, come on, mate. Bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, Carson says, when the wrath of God comes over Egypt in a plague, whose son dies? Of course, the answer is neither of this. Because the saving power of the blood does not rest on the strength of the faith that the people are resting on him. The, 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 the strength of the power of the blood is the promises of God which are infallible, perfect, powerful, and eternal. The, the saving blood of the Lamb is not resting on how much you trust it. Only that you trust it. And the application to us is that we often feel like I'm not believing enough. Am I, am I strong-faithed enough? Am I Christian enough? Am I reformed enough? Am I obedient enough? Do I, do I trust hard enough? And, and the good news of the gospel is that it's not your faith that saves. It's not even the, the strength of your faith that saves. It's the Christ in whom you have faith 
that saves. You're never going to be assessed on the strength of your faith to see whether the blood that you're under will save you. The blood has the power. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and foreknown from before the foundations of the world, blood shed as a ransom for you. The God-man, His blood is powerful enough to save you even if all you have is this, is this weak, this faltering, this flickering fame of flame of faith. Jesus will save you because of his merit, his power, and his blood. Praise the Lord for our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are reminded. We're reminded that you love to remind us. That you, you, you did this amazing act of drama so that forever, as long as the Jewish people were a nation under God, they had the remembrance. They had a story to tell. They had a, a tale to define themselves by. And, and you commanded this continual remembrance in their midst so that they would continually point their eyes towards God the Savior and that they would be warned against, against toying with God the Judge. And Father God, we, we thank you that as much as that was a great salvation with a tremendous remembrance, we know that it was only a flickering shadow, a, a dull image, a, a crumb of the true loaf, which is Jesus Christ who came and, and performed the exodus of saving us from our sin, of absorbing all of your wrath, of taking it all in himself, your firstborn son, killed in the place of all of us. We thank you that there is freedom, is power, is forgiveness, is grace, and is perfect justice. You have satisfied yourself. You've done what we could not do. You never lowered your standards. You, you exalted your standards and met them in Jesus and yet you swing open the door of salvation to us. Father God, I pray that you would enable us by the, by the Bible, this book of remembrance, the book of the covenant, which continually points us back to the exodus of our salvation, that tells us that we are defined as Christians, as Jesus' people, as people under the blood of the Lamb. And as it even gives us this anticipation that we are told in the book of Revelation that the heavenly worship is all about praising Jesus for giving his life as a ransom and by his blood, forgiving people and ransoming people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Lord God, we are surrounded by the blood from the beginning of our, of our religion from the, to the end of the world. It is all purchased it is all bound up in it is all founded by the blood of the lord jesus christ i pray lord god that you would increase our faith that you would purify our faith that you would let us see jesus behold him and trust him father god i pray for those egyptians in our midst those pharaohs in our midst those people who up until this point are unbelievers in jesus christ they don't trust him they have not run to a household that has the blood over the doors. They still are in that dangerous, terrifying, precarious position of walking around in the streets of Egypt at midnight. Father God, your wrath dangles over them. It hangs right above their head. And at any moment that your mercy expires, they will be absorbed by your wrath into hell forever. Father God, I pray that you would give to them mercy to throw themselves into the nearest door with blood on it, that they would not even wonder about how much they believe or, or how firmly they can persevere or how strong they are, but would they simply today cling onto the truth of what they have heard of Jesus and in doing that be saved. Father God, please give, 
give new hearts of new faith in Jesus Christ in our midst this morning. And we thank you for him. We praise you for him. We glorify you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we all say, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.